What's in a name? That's a question that was first posed by William Shakespeare and his most well-known play, Romeo and Juliet. And even if you've never seen Romeo and Juliet or read it, I know you know what it's about. It's about these two young Italian nobles who fall in love despite the fact that their families have a fierce, hateful rivalry with one another. Now, Romeo is a Montague. And the problem is that Juliet is a a Capulet. So, when these two discover one another, but more than that, discover the problem that they are from these rivaling clans. When Juliet discovers her lover's last name, she cries out in the most famous line probably Shakespeare ever wrote, Romeo, Romeo, wherefore art thou, Romeo? Deny thy father and refuse thy name, or if thou wilt not, be but sworn, my love, and I'll no longer be a Capulet. After all, Juliet asked, what's in a name? That which we call a rose by any other name would smell as sweet. Now, for those of us who aren't caught up on our Shakespearean English, myself included, What Juliet is talking about here in her famous speech is she is lamenting the fact that Romeo is Romeo. When she says, wherefore art thou Romeo? She's really asking, why did you have to be Romeo? Why did you have to be from this family? She asks. Because no matter what happens, if we're to fall in love and pledge ourselves to one another, no matter what happens, one of us will have to deny our family name. Now, what's the problem with denying their family name? The problem is they'll have to give up all of their worldly status and privileges that go with that name. All the honor and dignity that comes with that family name. But trying to console herself, Juliet then says this, but what's in a name anyway? A rose would smell good even if we called it another name. What matters is not the name. What matters is the the thing behind the name. The character of the person. The nature of the person behind the name. Now, from a completely human perspective, she's right. Our names, whether our first name or our family name, don't determine who we are. When the nurse writes on our birth certificate our name, it doesn't magically change and bind us to some character trait. We can live up to our names. Our first or our last name. Whether good or bad, we can live up to them. Our names ultimately do not define us. But here's the catch. We've come to, today, one of the most enigmatic and puzzling sections of Scripture, I think. Because the weight of Exodus 3 is all about the name of God. But not just what we call Him. Not just uh, uh, air that escapes our mouth and, and forms certain consonant and vowel sounds. It's not simply about that. But on a more fundamental level, when we discuss the name of God, we are talking about who God is. What His character and nature are. And based on that truth, 
It's no wonder why devout Jews, even to this day, will simply refer to God as Hashem. The Hebrew word for the name. Instead of even saying the name, they call Him the name. Why? Because God is His name. His character and His name are one and the same. Indivisible. That's very unlike what it means to be a human being. My name, Caleb, can mean bold. And then there are some times where I feel so sheepish. Bold like a, like a, like a, a guard dog. And I feel more like a little rat sometimes. So my name and my character can not always match up. That's the truth for every human name. But God's name and what it means are inseparable. His character and His identity are all bound up together. So what does this mean practically? Well, we'll find out in our passage today. But by way of review, last week we met someone. Remember, this is an interesting passage because so many of the main characters go unnamed. Finally, we get to Moses, this little boy in a basket who grows up to become a prince of Egypt and later becomes an exile and an outcast because of things he did in Egypt. And it leads him to the wilderness. And in just a few short verses, maybe 20-something verses, we cover 80 years of this man's life. And, and, And we're left with a final question. Well, just who is this guy? Is he a Hebrew refugee? Is he a, an exiled Egyptian prince? Who is Moses? Who will he end up being? What will his final identity be? Why are we spending 80 years with this one character? Just to find that he's a man that flees out into the middle of nowhere, marries a, a foreign bride, and, and names his own son stranger or immigrant. That's what Gershom means. There is no identity established. And that's what brings us to our passage today. So when we return to the scene, we find Moses, even all these years later, shepherding the sheep of his father-in-law, Jethro. Now last time the passage called him rule, this time they call him Jethro. That just goes to show you. And then another place we'll meet Hobabs, all one and the same person. People go by different names and different situations in, in the Scriptures. Identity for a human being is flexible. So here he is in the wilderness uh, approaching a, a, a mountain called Horeb or Sinai as we probably more well know. it. And from our perspective, nothing extraordinary is happening or unfolding here. But from a divine perspective, God is drawing near to this wanderer on His holy mountain to meet with Moses. And from a biblical perspective, we're entering a scene that is supposed to remind us of the very first setting in Scripture. We're walking back into Eden. What does that mean? Well, Eden, as you recall, was the garden of God. It was a place where God and humanity lived together in total harmony and glory. Where the divine and the human coexisted peacefully. But what you may not remember, and something that we pass over quickly, is that Eden isn't simply just described as this lush paradise, this this wonderful garden habitat. 
but it's described as a holy mountain as well. When you get to the prophet Ezekiel and he's describing Eden in chapter 28, he describes it not only as the garden of God, but the mountain of God. See, here we have Horeb described as the mountain of God. And we have Eden elsewhere in the Bible described as not only the garden of God, but the mountain of God. And this is a pattern we'll see all over the Scripture. When God comes to meet with humanity, He often comes to them in a garden on a mountain. Dissembolizing His descent from glory from the skies above onto the high places of the earth. And, and when He's there, it's not a desert, it's not a wilderness. Life pours out of Him, bringing life to everything around Him. So here God is on a mountain. Even out of the wilderness, coming close to humanity. And we see vegetation. And it is not like any vegetation we've ever seen. It is blazing with glory and yet not being consumed. Again, God is giving us a glimpse of what life is like with Him. Paradise revisited. So unwittingly, Moses sees this supernatural scene as he's moving out of the wilderness and into the presence of God. And suddenly, he's in the presence of an angel of the Lord that appears to him in a blazing, fiery bush. Again, folks, these are all images of Eden that should be popping up in our minds. Remember that that in, in, at the, by the end of Genesis 3, we see an angel of the Lord standing guard in Eden with a fiery sword. An angel, a flame, a tree. All of these images. We should be hearkening back to Genesis 3. And Moses, when he sees this remarkable sight, he can't help but be drawn to it. And so as he goes closer to find out what he's looking at, And as he approaches, suddenly he stopped in his tracks because something or someone addresses him. A voice calls from this bush, Moses! He freezes in his tracks. Here I am. Before he hears the most shocking declaration he's ever heard in his life. Don't come any closer. In fact, remove your sandals, your dirty um, sheep dung covered sandals, for you are walking into the presence of the divine, of the holy. I am the God of your father. Not only that, I'm the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. And the scriptures say, Moses responds, and the only reasonable way possible. Abject terror. Here he is thinking he's seeing just some trick of the eyes in the desert and he doesn't realize he has walked into the very presence of the living God. He hides his face. But in verse 7, this holy and terrifying God tells him why He's revealed Himself. He says, I've observed the misery of My people and Egypt. And I've heard them crying out because of their oppressors. I know their suffering. I have come down 
to rescue them from the power of the Egyptians and to bring them from that land, that land of slavery, that land of shackles, that land of humiliation, that land of dehumanization, I am going to bring them from that land into a land that is good and spacious, overflowing with milk and honey and everything they could ever possibly need. So because the Israelites' cry for help has come up to me, and I have also seen the way of the Egyptians and oppressing them, therefore, go, Moses. I'm sending you to Pharaoh so that you may lead my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. We've heard this story a million times. It no longer shocks us. But you can't help but think what Moses must be feeling in this moment. All of this revelation pouring out here. This God who he didn't previously know has told him, I see the suffering of my people. I hear the misery. Their cries have reached my ears. And I, as their God, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and even your father, Moses, I am coming to rescue them and deliver them to everything they've ever needed. Just as this same God responded to the starving cry of Hagar and Ishmael in the wilderness, just as this same God responded to the anguished cries of the poor and the abused citizens of Sodom and Gomorrah, so does God now respond to the cries of His own people. Before we even know His name, we are seeing that God's character is for suffering people. Before He even reveals His name, He shows His compassion for those that are in pain. More than that, He shows that His character is fundamentally opposed to the bullies and uh, brutes of the world that will use their wealth and power and whatever else to make life hard for others. God is compassionate for hurting people and angry with the unjust for making it worse. And now He's called to Moses. Moses of all people. An 80-year-old man in the middle of nowhere that everybody's forgotten about. He's called to Moses to go to the most powerful, violent, evil man in human history up until that point and get him to lead or to let the Israelites go so he can lead them to a better place. The promises that God has been making to Adam and to Noah and to Abraham are still alive and well even when the Israelites and Moses can't believe it. The promises He's made centuries ago to be their God and for them to be His people even when they are in abject horror still are true. 
See, that's an important thing to remember about God. Is that God is God. And we're not. We're like an ant trying to, to, to survey the topography of history from, from the ground level. We can't see before the little mound in front of us. It's so easy for us to forget who God is and what He'll do for us. And yet God has not forgotten His people. When they were at their lowest, when they had no money, no political power, no influence, no Christian culture, God was still for them. Even in their suffering and sorrow. We would do well as Christians to remember that. Maybe the tide of the times are not with us. Maybe the culture is not on our side. But the God who sees and hears and knows, the God of the living, of Abraham, of Isaac, and Jacob, is with us still. Now, if this were a movie, I think after this big revelation, we'd cut back to a shot of Moses with his jaw hanging open on his chest. Like Jim Carrey in The Mask when his jaw falls loose. You want me to do what? Moses, who has spent 80 years not understanding who he is? Moses, whose own people think he's a spoiled, rich kid that deserves to be rotting out in the desert? Moses, who's one of Egypt's most wanted fugitives on the run for these four decades, this God wants him to waltz back into the presence of the most powerful empire on earth and do what? You can understand his hesitancy in verse 11 as he says, who in the world am I to go and do this? But this passage isn't about Moses. It's not about his failures or his limitations or his understanding. This passage is about God. And that's why God says what matters is that I will certainly be with you. I will be with you. That's the person that Pharaoh and Egypt need to worry about. That I'll be standing before Him. Holding Him to account. And here's the sign that before long, you and all your people will be back in this very spot worshiping Me for fulfilling all of these promises. Still hesitant, as any human being would be, Moses asks, But even if they accept me, even if my name carries a certain infamy with it, even if they kind of remember me, see, Moses is so focused on himself here, who do I say that you are? What's your name? Sure, I can say the God of Israelites' ancestors, but Egypt has a whole slew of gods of powerful river gods and sun gods, gods of death, gods of life. Who do I say that has, is, is bringing 
has the audacity audacity to bring me before Pharaoh. The response we get is one of the most staggering theological claims in the entire Bible. Yes, this God is the God of their ancestors. But how does God reveal Himself? Does He reveal Himself as their ancestors in Genesis have met Him? Does He reveal Himself as El Elyon, God Most High? Or El Roi, God who sees? Or El Shaddai, God Almighty? Or El Elom, God Eternal? All of these names are associated with God and His character in Genesis. Is that how He reveals Himself to Moses though? God says, And verse 14, this is who I am. I am who I am. I will be who I will be, Moses. When the Israelites want to know who sent you, you tell them I am has sent me. Now what are we to make of this? Think with me for a minute here. What names do? They signify individuals or families. They describe character and nature. In other words, names are meant to summarize and define who people are or what you can expect from them. But this isn't so for God. He cannot be boxed in or exhausted or defined, or summarized. God is simply who God is. His nature and His character are eternal and constant. The world doesn't define God. History doesn't define God. Our understanding or perception or insight don't define God. God is who God is. In the Hebrew text, all we get are four consonants to describe this name. Y-H-W-H. But even to this day, we don't know how that's pronounced. Every, even the, 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 the Jewish scholars, some of the, the, the most brilliant men on the planet, they don't even remember. This name is lost to history. The best guess we have is Yahweh. But even that, is, even that holy guess is, is so sacred and so off-limits by the ancients that they just use the word Adonai, meaning Lord, in all capital letters. And when you see in your Bibles, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, be assured, whether you understand it or not, whether you know its power or not, whether you understand and perceive it and its full glory or not, you are reading the name of the Lord. I am. Now, why is this significant? Well, scholar John Golden Gay says, Moses asks after God's name. But God responds, not with a label, but with a theology. In other words, when we read the name of God, we are seeing the identity of God. This God is the Creator and the Redeemer. He is the just judge and the merciful Savior. 
He's the exalter of the suffering and the humbler of the oppressor. He's the one who inspires faith and demands obedience. He who was, is, and always shall be world without end. God is everything He speaks because He always accomplishes it. So, the Lord says, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, the Lord says, tell the Israelites, I am the God of their ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and this is My name forever and how I will always be remembered. Did you catch that? I am who I am. You can't define me by anything you know of on this earth. I am who I am. I will be who I will be. I'm the God of these men that lived in history. Of all their flaws and foibles that we read about. Of all their sins and and wickedness that we read about in Genesis. I am their God and I will always be their God. My name will always be associated with these sinners. God is the one who binds Himself. You want to know God's character? You want to know who God is? He is the one that binds Himself, not just in the past, but in the present and the future, on into eternity, to miserable people like this. I am who I am is the one who loves Israel and through them is saving the world even though none of them deserve it. The Lord's identity is the One who was, is, and always will be for His low-down, yellow-bellied, rotten people. His name, His holy name, that's unpronounceable, that's unknowable, He is bound to these people forever. And He'll be known throughout all generations, all generations of human history as this God. God will unveil His justice and His gracious character and history for us. For us, Maranatha. And as He begins that revelation through Moses and to Israel, He lets them know just what kind of God He is. I've paid close attention to you. What's been done to you in Egypt. And I've promised you that I'll rescue you from that misery. He cares deeply about the hurt that people go through. But more than that, He's the God that provides a way and a future forward. I'll bring you to a place where you can belong, where you can live, where you can thrive, where you can worship. I'll bring you to that place. But you must go before the king of Egypt and say to him, the Lord, I am who I am, the God of the Hebrews. I can't get over that, folks. I am who I am, and yet, He chooses a people to be their God. Deuteronomy 7, we remember that God says, I didn't choose you, Israel, because you were the 
best and the brightest, that you were the most. I chose you because I chose you. I chose you because I chose to love you. The I, great I am has chosen to love the Israelites. To love the people that will come to Him in faith and repentance. And He's not just selected Israel just to select Israel. He's elected Israel so that through Israel, the whole world might be saved. I am the God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go to worship Him. The Lord's agenda is to free His people for worship and thriving. That's what God wants for people. The characterization we hear of God in the media or in culture or whatever is that he's, a, he's, he's the worst Pharaoh of all. He's a slave driver. He's a taskmaster. God is a liberating God. He saves us for our joy and our good. For our thriving. For our life. That's what He wants for His people. And He does that so that we can go and as we live and thrive and find joy and peace in Him, others will see this is a God that they can find joy and peace in. That's what He has in mind for Israel and for the church and all who follow Him throughout all the ages of man. That's what He has for us. Don't let any Pharaoh, don't let any political or economic or cultural Pharaoh say, oh, He doesn't offer you freedom. Work hard. Put others down. Build an empire for yourself. Uh, Hoard these resources for yourself. Do this. Find your own glory. Don't let anybody tell you that you will find peace in that. You'll find slavery and death in that. You'll find hatred and misery and sin in that. But in the name of I am who I am, I will be who I will be, you'll find true peace, true freedom through great trust and hope. However, the Lord continues in verse 19, an obstacle remains. Sin remains. That's what Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, symbolizes. The empire of sin and death. The empire of self-worship. He'll oppose God. He'll oppose the God of the living. He'll oppose the liberating God. All for His own glory, His own status, His own uh, recognition and power and all that stuff that's so alluring to us, but turns to dust. Where is this Pharaoh? He's forgotten. His whole empire is covered up in sand and death. But God will be who God will be. And any who oppose His love and His goodness for the world, He will strike them with signs and miracles they would not believe. We'll get to that in the coming weeks. But the beauty is that those who oppose God may get the sharp end of the sword, but those who listen and obey Him will go out 
with their hands and their pockets and their lives full. Isn't it incredible? This is something we pass over often, I think, in talking with the Israelites. When the Israelites go out of their misery and suffering in Egypt, God turns the heart of the Egyptians towards the Israelites and they load them up with treasure as they go. They go out with food and clothing and even decorative jewelry to go. God will clear the path for His people to go on and worship. And He'll provide not only what they need, but anything they could ever want. So God gives these people a promise. He'll liberate them from slavery. He gives them a plan that He'll use Moses and the elders of Israel to confront Pharaoh and his evil regime. And finally, amazingly, God will give them plunder. Reimbursement for 400 years of brutality, of cruelty, and a preparation for their journey to where they're supposed to be. But folks, let's not miss the most crucial aspect of this passage. All of this will be done by God. It will be done by I Am. It won't be done by Pharaoh. And it won't be done by Moses either. It's not the Egyptians that get it done or the Israelites who accomplish it. It's the Lord who secures this for His people. This is who He is. And this is what His name means for them. He is everything they need. And He provides everything they need. And as we draw to a conclusion this morning, I want us to remember that the Lord's name rings in our ears, not only here in the desert with Moses, but in the life and the person and the work of Jesus Christ. When you want to know the Lord's name, what it means, you look to Jesus as He walks amongst us sinners and suffers. It's no accident that in John's Gospel, we hear Jesus say seven times, I am! I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door, the good shepherd, the true vine, the resurrection, the life, the way, the truth, and the life. Everything we need for this life and the next we can find in the great I am of the Gospels. Yahweh, wrapped in human flesh. Jesus Christ, the One who will be who He will be to save His sinners from their sins. And so folks, as we enter into another week, another week where we have to deal with sickness and sorrow, another week where we desperately need help and resources and wisdom, Another week where we feel utterly helpless and hopeless. As we enter into another week where we want answers to our questions. A clear path forward in life. When we want comfort in our pain. Acknowledgement in our anonymity. When we want love in our loneliness. Let us look to find ourselves not in ourselves. Not in what we can do. Not in what we might be able to accomplish. Let us look to find ourselves 
in the God who gives life. In the Lord. The I am who I am. Who in Jesus stoops low to be I am for us. Let's pray. Father, help us to trust in Your name. The Lord, the Lord. And help us to see Your name for us in Your Son who lives and dies and rises for us. We ask this in His name. Amen.